0: Welcome to Unlearn to Learn, a podcast brought to you by the World Obesity Federation. I'm your host, Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at World Obesity, and in my role as Manager of Scope E-Learning, I oversee the development of resources to improve the care and treatment of patients with obesity. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the most experienced medical practitioners and surgeons from all over the world. Across nine episodes, we'll be examining the prevention, treatment and care of obesity, by busting myths and focusing on the science behind obesity treatment and management. Whether you're a medical student, a practitioner, or simply have an interest in obesity and public health, there's something to be learned here, so join us, let's get started. Today we're looking at the variations of obesity in different ethnic groups, how variations in genetic predisposition to obesity vary by ethnicity, and the cultural differences in the perception of weight gain. There are differences in obesity measurements among different ethnic groups, and consequently there are challenges in establishing a universal measurement of obesity. In this episode, we will examine differing perceptions of excess weight in various cultural contexts. Joining me on the Unlearn to Learn podcast today is Dr. Fatima Stanford. Dr. Fatima is an obesity medicine physician, scientist, educator, and policymaker at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She is an internationally sought-after expert in obesity medicine, who bridges the intersection of medicine, public health, policy, and disparities. Dr. Fatima, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really grateful to you for giving up your time to speak to us.
1: It's my delight to do whatever I can to educate the world about obesity as a disease and dispel any myths that may be out there.
0: Perfect. Well, that's exactly why we're here. And to start with quite a broad question for you on this quite challenging topic, what are some examples of differences in genetic predisposition to obesity among different ethnic backgrounds?
1: You know, I think this is an excellent question, and we have a lot of data throughout the world that points to many different reasons why we might see genetic variation in body size and body type. Um, But I want to point to one key area of literature that I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with, and that's the difference between looking at what we call subcutaneous adipose tissue, that fat that's right beneath the skin surface, versus visceral adipose tissue, which is that fat around the organs. And when you look at individuals that are from African descent, like myself, versus those that are not from African descent, particularly white individuals, there are differences that start really early in life that talk about the variation and where fat is stored. And this is what we see in both males and females. So actually across genders, we see these differences um, really kind of stay about the same. So for example, if you're looking at white individuals, both in the US and Europe, et cetera, there tends to be a higher likelihood of having visceral adiposity, or that fat that's stored around the midsections at all ages, interestingly enough. Whereas if you look at individuals of African descent, you tend to see more storage of fat in the hip, buttock, thigh region, Typically, right below the skin surface. This is this accounts for that differences in body types that we often see. For example, much more prominently, I would say, in women, but we can also see it in men um, of African descent versus those that um, are of Caucasian descent. So that's something that's something that's been proven, demonstrated both in the pediatric literature and the adult literature, which is really, really interesting. Um, Another thing that I think a lot of people are unaware of is there have been studies done, what we call GWAS, or Genome-Wide Association Studies, which do point to differences in the predilection to signal down different pathways of the brain, which tells you to eat more and store more in African populations. There was a large study conducted in the United States out of the NIH where they looked at individuals born in the U.S., And they also looked at African individuals in certain key countries, um, particularly Nigeria, Ghana, for example. And what they found was that there was something called a SEMA, which is SEMA4D marker, which accounted for a five BMI point difference higher um, in these individuals that were derived from these populations that we didn't see in non Hispanic white individuals, for example. So, as you can tell, there's a lot of different things, a lot of key, I think, information that's out in the literature that points to some. differences and some nuances, which means that we can't look at it like a cookie cutter. Another group that I'd like to point out particularly is Asian adults. And actually what we've seen in Asian adults is we've seen a a difference such that they tend to carry much more central adiposity weight in the midsection. And we actually have BMI cutoffs that are even lower for those individuals because their risk for metabolic disease like type two diabetes is higher at a much lower weight status. So you can see across racial ethnic bounds, we have some major key differences in weight, weight status, adipose or fat, um, and where that's stored. That can account for what we see as differences across the world with weight status based upon different racial ethnic backgrounds.
0: That's really fascinating. And do we tend to observe similar differences between people from different racial backgrounds across different geographies?
1: Exactly. That's that's the key thing. So if you look at the data, and you know, if you were to do a search across the literature, not just focusing on any one country, you would see that the things that I've talked about today really remain true, regardless of where you're located, whether you're in Europe or if you're in Asia, Africa, the U.S., um, or North, you know, North America, for example. These differences appear to be consistent, um, regardless of where one's physically located on
0: the globe. Okay, interesting. So are these differences in predisposition? to obesity primarily genetic or exclusively genetic, or are there some environmental factors that come into play as well?
1: I think that's a great question, you know, is it genetics alone? Is it genetics plus environment? And I think that we have to acknowledge that it's probably multifactorial even beyond what you just said. So, it's not only genetics. It's environments, it's response to hormonal changes um in one's body, it's response to trauma, it's response um to medications that might be prescribed for other conditions. So, I think it's multifactorial. Those those genes are interacting with the environment, right, in which we live, act, eat, breathe, play. Um, And when we combine those things together, we see differences in response. So I've done, for example, a lot of writing on obesity and racism, and people are often puzzled when they hear that connection and wonder why I bring these up and even try to put them together. And what we do know is if we're looking at obesity, a disease characterized by inflammation, that when someone experiences stress, and that stress may be, oh, you know, I didn't do well on a homework assignment, or it may be something like, you know, I had a recent loss of a family member or friend in my life. Or if you're experiencing something like racism, that increases inflammation in the body with that increase in inflammation causes more storage of adipose or fat tissue, typically in areas we don't particularly like. And so you can see that different causes, you know, really play a role. It's not just genetics by itself. I think it's that admixture of genetics with environment and all of these other factors that I've mentioned.
0: That's fascinating. So you're saying that the body actually has a physiological reaction to experiencing racism.
1: Absolutely, hands down. The largest study that we've actually seen um, really recognize this is a study that was performed here in the US. It's called the Black Women's Health Study. And in the Black Women's Health Study, they followed individuals that were middle class and higher, actually, believe it or not, and followed them over a long period of time. Um, I'm proud to say my mom is a participant in this study and has been a long term um, participant. Um, But what they found was individuals that experienced either every day versus a lifetime of racism tended to have much higher levels of adiposity weight status than those that did not acknowledge that they experienced the same things. Now, they were comparing apples to apples, Black women to Black women, and seeing what was their response, what did they feel as though they were experiencing, and seeing this huge difference between those that really experienced racism or experienced more chronic racism versus those that did not. And so I think this has been a really great study of elucidating this, um, key issue that we might often neglect when looking at why certain groups struggle with obesity disproportionately. And we do know, particularly in high income countries like the UK, where you guys are based here in the United States, um, that non-Hispanic black women tend to have the highest rates of obesity. And I think there are several reasons that explain this, but racism is one key factor that is often overlooked.
0: That's really interesting and I'll be honest it's not something I'd ever considered before. So essentially you're saying in order to combat obesity we need to combat racism.
1: Absolutely it's it's a one two punch. Um I recently recorded a TED talk where I talk about the collision of three pandemics. And the three pandemics that I'm talking about are one that we talk about all day, every day, which is COVID-19, which I think we all have recognized as a pandemic, hence the name COVID-19 pandemic. But the other two pandemics that I think that we don't recognize are are really interacting quite closely um, with COVID-19 are obesity and then racism. And what we have seen here, I think the United States has kind of been the group that's propelled, particularly that concept of looking at racism um, social inequities and the role it plays in this disease process in a way that others haven't, but others have embraced, particularly with certain key you know, murders of individuals here in the United States, particularly George Floyd, which really sparked an international attention and focus on race and, and racism. That collision of those three different pandemics, I think, has brought us to where we are today, even in this conversation of looking at how one's race dictates often their stance, their ability to progress in society, um, but recognizing that this is also really significantly tied into disease and disease status.
0: Okay, fascinating. I mean, these stories that came out in 2020, we had the COVID pandemic, we obviously had the Black Lives Matter movement inspired by the murder of George Floyd. I'd never really reconciled those two things as being in any way connected, but now you put it like that, there's a clear connection. And it's it's really fascinating to think of it in that way.
1: Right. So that means, Alexander, you and all of the people that are listening to this podcast are going to go and look at that lovely TED Talk that I recorded only about 13 and a half minutes where I really delve um, specifically into the collision of these three um, key issues, right? COVID-19, racism, and obesity, and really tie those three together. Um, and really, we get a sense of like, wow, look at how, how those conflate and how they really amplify each other, unfortunately.
0: Absolutely. and We'll make sure to include a link to that YouTube video in the notes for this episode. Thank you. Excellent. So looping back to the issue of genetic predisposition. So given these disparities between people of different ethnic backgrounds and different ethnic groups, how useful is something like BMI as a universal scale for measuring obesity?
1: I think this is the best question you've asked this far, like the BMI is so controversial for, for really the reason that how I'm going to answer this or respond to this question. BMI has been a tool that was typically used, actually, and was developed based upon actuarial table data from life insurance companies. And it was typically looking at whites that were insured in the early 1900s, you know, but for life insurance. And they developed cutoffs that really determined oh, okay, if you're at this cutoff, then you have a higher likelihood of dying. We need to charge this person a bit more um, for their insurance. And then someone that was quote unquote normal weight, um, which of course by BMI chart would be someone with a BMI between 18.5 and 24.9, right? That's normal. Problem with these BMI charts and what I just told you is that they weren't really based in science, right? This is an indirect measure of adiposity or weight. Indirect is the key word that I want to say that I used just then, and this tells us that it's really not technically measuring adipose. It's giving us weight status, taking into account weight and height. But what we've talked about so far is where is that weight positioned? You know, how bad is this for one's health? We can't discern that at all, right, from the BMI. Also, when these BMI charts were being developed, they did not configure in certain racial ethnic groups. Um, So for example, Alexander, what I did was I redrew the BMI charts here in the United States in a paper I published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings where I actually used current data, not data from the 1930s and actually incorporated, you know, different racial ethnic groups, different genders, you know, male and female, to determine where weight cutoffs would be looking at, you know, other obesity risk factors like high blood pressure, diabetes. And what was really interesting about redoing this work and as intense as it was was seeing that the curve shifted up particularly for black women. The group that I've already called out is as, as being kind of singled out as having the highest obesity rates in many of the high income countries. And so that was quite interesting. Now, back in 2000, you know, there's certain literature that came out in 2003 and 4 and then another set of literature in 2007 where they looked at Asian individuals and actually redrew the BMI cutoffs for those individuals. So what you can see is that we're seeing some differentiation and really sticking to just like one key number as the end all be all for where someone should be is probably flawed in thinking. And it's why also I never give my patients a target weight to get to. Let me tell you, they ask me at every visit, well, Dr. Stanford, what am I supposed to be at? And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to do that. I said, we're going to get you to the happiest, healthiest weight for you recognizing that you are different from your siblings or different from your parents or different from whomever else. My focus is the most important person in the room who is you. And we're going to see what your body does in response to different treatments or therapies, but we want to be safe. We want to be sustainable and we want to have longevity in terms of our response. So that was a lot to say that I think BMI um, is a great population-wide measure, but when we get into the individual level, I think that we need to be um, expand our thinking to use other tools and factors that may give us a better understanding of how someone's weight is impacting their overall health.
0: Okay, fascinating. And forgive me, I'll expose my ignorance here, but to what extent is BMI used by healthcare professionals in light of what you've just said?
1: Oh absolutely. Um I would say that um for most countries um and when I say most let's go with 90 to 95% so a large majority do rely heavily on BMI for guiding treatments and therapies. So for example, if you're looking at what's done um, in Europe, what's done in the US in terms of BMI cutoffs, typically, you know, everyone meets uh, the ability to use lifestyle modifications or behavioral therapy that's across the BMI spectrum, but we typically don't consider medications for the treatment of obesity until someone gets to a BMI of 27 plus some type of obesity-related disease like diabetes or high blood pressure, for example, Um, When patients cross that threshold of a BMI of 30, which is classified as someone having obesity, um, we begin to entertain medications. And then there are those cutoffs for metabolic and bariatric surgery, which are either someone that has a BMI greater than or equal to 40, which is someone with severe obesity, or someone with moderate obesity, which would be a BMI of 35 to 39.9. With an obesity-related comorbid condition, so you can see very specific um, in terms of how we navigate treatment. When when will insurance companies, for example, here in the U.S., approve therapy? You know, this is this is us following those guidelines. Um, the World Health Organization obviously um, is staunch um, supporter of BMI and its utilization. As I said, I do think it gives us um, a hand on the p- pulse of what's happening from uh you know where from a geographic perspective like gosh what's going on in the UK what are we seeing in Italy what are we seeing in France what are we seeing in Kenya what are we seeing in the US for example it can give us that. But once we get down, like I said, on that granular, personalized level, I think we have to be considering things like waist circumference, which give us a sense if patients are carrying weight in their midsection, which is where we don't want to be carrying it. You know, for those that get really fancy, we can get into things like DEXA scan, which tells you actually how much fat and where it's stored. And then we have these smart devices these days, um, for example, like the Amazon Halo that tells us body composition. So there's a lot of different things we can do to kind of round out the picture. The easiest is to measure waist circumference. And for those listening, you're like, how do I measure? I would just take a simple tape measure, put it at your belly button and measure around the circumference. And the targets I'm gonna give you are, 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 of course, our lovely US targets, because that's how my brain thinks, but um, the targets would be less than 35 inches in women and less than 40 inches in men in terms of where that waist, um, where we would like for it to be.
0: Thank you. that sounds like some excellent advice for our listeners, particularly the medical students listening.
1: Exactly. Or for the people that are at home, because I make all of my patients give me their waist circumference and their weight, in all of their visits if I'm doing a telemedicine visit, which is about 80% of my practice.
0: Absolutely. Something else that I find interesting with regards to the links between obesity and ethnicity are the perceptions of obesity among different communities. I wondered if you could tell me how the perception of excess weight varies among different cultures.
1: Absolutely. I think there's significant variation across cultures um, in terms of what we see is is considered to be good. I think a lot of like Eurocentric is what I'm gonna use countries um, really idealize Thinness, leanness. Um, it really started with the modeling industry in the nineteen sixties, seventies. You had Twiggy, for example, which was an example of like how you should be. Nobody is really quite as thin as Twiggy typically, but um, it was what people strive to. If you look at um the runways, right, during Fashion Week and you know, in Europe in the US, typically we're going with really thin, lean body types, almost looking like the clothes are like on a hanger, right? You know, with motionless faces, you know, not much expression. That's really that gaunt look. But if you get into other countries, you know, excess weight is celebrated. Um, Let's look at Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. You can imagine that... um, Having more weight is characteristic of having more wealth, right? That opulence, meaning, you know, supportive of, oh, maybe you have the means to eat and have what you want. So that may be characterized um, as a very good thing in those um, cultures. And so when we're talking across cultures, one of the key things I do is I sit and I try to assess who I'm speaking to? Who's the audience? And recognizing that there's differences in how it's viewed. Um, I just gave a lecture in Dubai, for example. There is it a largely Muslim country. You know, people in you know, like a lot of full garb gowns, where you might not see one's body type. Right? It's not defined um, in some type of tailored, you know, European suit or a dress that I might wear. And so there tends to be um, higher obesity rates. Um, and But people don't even notice it as much, right? Because the the clothing is so forgiving that you might not notice that someone's carrying quite a bit of adiposity in the way you would if you were dressed in in more Eurocentric clothing. So such variation. And I think that the key thing is that we have to recognize that when we're doing work in the space, that we have to Know that our work lives, eats, and breathes in that country or that culture. And we have to recognize what the culture believes and feels so that we're aligning our thoughts and considerations with patients um, that fits that culture.
0: Okay, that's very interesting. And it reminds me of a thesis that I read not long ago um, about perceptions of obesity in Uganda. And I read that, you know, in, in Uganda, obesity is celebrated, just like you said, as a sign of wealth. And in fact, I believe that people are actually more likely to be given bank loans if they have obesity. Well, so these things really can bank loan. really can. Yeah, have the bank
1: loan end. is interesting. I actually published a paper um, probably about six to eight months ago where we looked at HIV medications in Uganda and several other countries. And the reason we looked at it is because we know that several of the HIV medications actually can cause weight gain and whether or not this would influence someone taking the medication. We use something called like a why i think it's a wise pill container something that will let you know if the patient's taking the medication and we found particularly in the african countries that we studied that actually it did not dissuade individuals because it was pushing weight up much like you were just saying it's seen as a sign of opulence and wealth and also makes them seem like they don't have this infectious disease of hiv which has often been feared and and revered as something very negative within the culture so it's really interesting to learn these different nuances and how they play a role in how people perceive themselves and those around them
0: that's really interesting I, i know there are so many medications that are associated with weight gain as a possible side effect and it had never occurred to me that somebody might be more inclined to take that medication because it could cause weight gain. Right. We
1: didn't expect that as as a, as a um, that wasn't what we went into the study thinking no, we would sure. find. But, you know, when you find these things, you're like, wow, that's that's interesting. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, when I give lectures and I talk about medications that cause weight gain, my goal is to, you know, first see if does the person need to be on the medication? If they don't, then stop the medication. And substitute with something more weight neutral, et cetera. So actually, I'm doing quite the opposite of what people um, in the study, you know, inadvertently were doing to ensure that they were not seen as sickly, which is what HIV typically is characterized by, a, like a leanness, particularly in, in, you know, many of the, the African countries. Um, I would say not as much in countries where there's, you know, I would say greater exposure to healthcare where, you know, this is more of just treated like a chronic disease than not.
0: Okay, and I suppose a follow-up question I would have there is within these communities, within these countries that do see obesity as a sign of wealth or status or even of of good health, how how do we counter that narrative without being in a position where we're encouraging, in fact, this is going to be the next topic I'd like to move on to, but without being in a position where we're actually encouraging weight stigma?
1: Absolutely. So I think that we just have to educate about obesity as a disease and talk about it as a disease and not a character flaw. Um, I think that typically when when we talk about obesity, we, not you and I, but the global community, it's like, oh, you know, that person has obesity. What did they do to themselves? Something they did wrong to cause this. Um, And ooh, you know, look at them. You know, like we make these judgments that are really quite negative and quite stigmatizing as as you mentioned so i think if we talk about it as a disease characterized by inflammation controlled by the brain and how signaling happens it changes the thought process and so you're like oh wait a minute this isn't just like oh i ate something or i did something wrong or you know oh putting the blame on me blame and shame kind of game so saying look you know i know that you you know value this but i want to i want to look at the health implications for where you are and let's talk about that. And like I said, let's get you to the happiest, healthiest weight for you and recognize that this disease can shorten life expectancy, can cause other chronic diseases and frame it from that reference point. So then you you medicalize it, right? Which is exactly what it should be because it's a chronic disease. We just haven't treated it as such forever, <laughs> basically.
0: Okay. Okay. And do you feel the tide is turning in that regard? Do you feel that obesity is starting to be treated and seen as a disease? Or do you feel we've still got a lot of work to do in that area?
1: So, I've, I'm going to answer yes to both, but let me explain why. So, I do think the tide is turning. I think that we have begun to recognize obesity as a disease. I mean, you're at the World Obesity Federation, right? There's a whole federation dedicated to this. And, you know, my work as an obesity medicine physician scientist, I think, would not have been something that we would have seen 10 or 20 plus years ago. So, we have this proliferation of individuals dedicated to either policy and advocacy side of obesity, treatment, surgical sides. You know, environmental sides, and so there's there's a shift. I would say we have. So I, I said I would add yes to to both. We still have a long way to go. We have not cracked the whip enough to really raise the alarm that obesity is a disease that requires chronic therapy and treatment, much like diabetes, which does get its due um, anywhere um, in the world. You know, for treatment of diabetes, typically we can get you know, access to care for most individuals. People see it as a serious um, condition. People don't see obesity as a serious disease. They see it as just like, okay, they could just get themselves back together and everything should be fine. They're not recognizing that it may be causing one of those 200 plus diseases that we know that it can lead to. So, um, So yes, the tide is turning, but still a tremendous amount of work that
0: needs to be done. And when you say people often don't recognize obesity as a disease, do you mean in the general population or do you mean including Everybody. healthcare practitioners?
1: <laughs> Every single human. I've published work, um, Alexander, on, actually did a study looking at what are medical students, resident physicians and fellow physicians taught about obesity throughout the entire world. I didn't want to keep it US focused because my idea was, okay, yeah, okay, US would be great, but what about the whole world? Because if there is one you know country that we can espouse as the great source of of education surrounding obesity then that'd be great to know the problem unfortunately was after doing this full systematic review i found that no country does an excellent job of educating physicians about the disease of obesity despite the fact that it's the most prevalent disease of our time now that's problematic i was hoping i could find a country or two that we could like you know look to them for guidance but unfortunately, there that's just not the case. So if physicians haven't been educated, how do we expect the general public to really know much about this um, disease? If physicians are still perpetuating weight bias and stigma, how do we expect the lay population to stop perpetuating weight bias and stigma? So I think you see how they go hand in hand. The knowledge of the physician then will trickle down to the general population with regards to most diseases. But if we don't know anything, then we can expect no trickle-down effect because there's no new knowledge that's being sent to the patients that they're serving.
0: That really is quite shocking when we think about it. I mean, every healthcare practitioner, by definition, is going to be treating many patients with obesity because so many people live with obesity. So the idea that there isn't a single country that has a decent standard of education on obesity within medical schools, that is really shocking, I think.
1: Well, I would say it's not shocking to me, but it is hurtful. um, Because what I think about in my patients, and I only care exclusively for patients with obesity, is what do they experience before they get to me? And unfortunately, they have a lot of negative experiences before they have a chance to meet with someone who's exclusively trained to care for their obesity. And it comes from that inadequate education and knowledge which then leads to poor advice, which leads to poor outcomes, and it leads to a vicious cycle of shame, blame for themselves. Um, My goal when they see me is to remove that blame and stigma, tell them that we're in this together, tell them they're the most important person in the room, I have to listen to them, learn from them about their bodies and how their bodies respond to environmental factors, et cetera, so I can then guide their therapy. But I don't live inside of their body. I live inside my body. So I can't predict or assume that I know everything about every single person with obesity as if they're all the same. And so I really think this gets into this idea of needing to really ramp up how we think about treatment, individualizing and personalizing treatment based upon certain factors that we just don't know the information about now, much like we do cancer therapies. You know, we don't say, hey, you know, you have cancer. Let's just give you that cancer drug. (laughs) Like which which but which cancer you know? Obviously, oncology is the field I think that has the best ability to tailor and individualize treatments to write some particular receptor, etc. And what I see in working with patients with obesity, the variation of response can be so dramatic, even within the same family. And with that comes my desire to want to know more about like why did this person respond with such magnitude, and this other person. Did they take anything? Did they respond at all? You know, even within the same family, like I said.
0: That's really, it's really shocking to hear. I suppose my next question would have to be, you know, what would you say the primary consequences are of this prevalence of stigma within healthcare settings and from healthcare practitioners?
1: I think this prevalence of stigma leads to really poor patient outcomes. So remember if you experience stigma, stress, we talked about racism earlier, but stigma is, you know, so racism, you know, if you're looking at, for example, um the type of bias that's most prevalent you know it's number 1 but number 2 right behind that is weight bias it's acceptable for us to think negatively and speak negatively about those with excess weight so you can imagine if let's say you go in to see your doctor let's set up a scenario um you go in to see your doctor you have excess weight um, and you get to the doctor's office, and there's not a blood pressure cuff that oh, that fits your arm. Okay, so that's maybe strike one. Okay, maybe, maybe that's not so bad. Then you get on the scale, and maybe the scale doesn't quite weigh you because it doesn't go to the appropriate weight. Maybe you get to the waiting room. There's not even a chair you can sit in because they didn't think about that. They put these really like very you know, chairs with lots of um, armrests that are pretty closely knit. So you, you've received, without me saying anything to you, you received a lot of messages about me not belonging. Now, me as in the patient not belonging. Now, let's say someone in the nurse's station snickers at the fact that the scale doesn't go to the weight that, you know, it should. That maybe doesn't make you feel so great either. So all of this happens before, let's say, they get to see me. And then when I see them and then I'm wondering, like, why are they they really so down and out? Is it something historically, meaning something that happened prior to the visit? Or is it something that happened during this visit? Do you think they want to come back to see me? Probably not. So what you end up seeing is poor treatment adherence. You see less um, follow-up care. You can see a delay in preventive screenings in terms of those things. But that stress actually leads to physiologic changes in the body. So we see increase in Things called like CRP, which is C-reactive protein and inflammatory marker, cortisol. We actually see higher blood pressure readings, higher um, blood sugars. So hemoglobin A1C is a measure of one's blood sugar over a three-month period. These things are all elevated. So what does this lead to? It leads to things like um, depression, anxiety. It increases the uses of substances, so, so you know illicit substances. It increases suicide risk. These are, none of those are good things that I just stated. But this is what happens when someone experiences weight stigma and bias, and you can imagine how this might intensify intensify in an area where they should get, you know have trusted um environment, right? That's the healthcare setting where they should feel comfortable. But if you ask most individuals that have obesity do they feel comfortable in that environment? The answer would be a resounding no,
0: okay. So my next question was going to simply be a case of, what advice would you give to healthcare professionals to reduce stigma in their practice? But I suppose as well as that, I should ask, how can we make sure that healthcare professionals recognise their own stigma and acknowledge it?
1: Oh, absolutely, and I, I think we should put this in the show notes. I really think it's great if people go and take um, what's called the Implicit Association Test for weight. Um, I'll put, you know, make sure that that's included so that you guys can have a link to that. But Harvard has um, what's called an IAT or Implicit Association Test for weight takes like about eight minutes or so to take. And you get a chance to see if you have biases towards individuals that have excess weight. And you might be surprised. You might be like, I don't feel any difference. I feel like I treat everybody the same. And then you get your score back and you're like, oh, wow, look at me. I, I do need some work. But it often starts with taking that internal assessment. Where are your flaws as an individual healthcare provider? Um, But if you don't know that you have flaws, then you're not going to ever work to treat them. So I think taking that free test is extremely important. And then recognize you have those flaws, recognize that the education you've received about obesity is minimal at best. And then go and make sure you're taking the appropriate courses. Um, One thing about the World Obesity Federation is there's a lot of wonderful content coming out, very educational, um, surrounding the disease of obesity. This is a great place um, for you to get some of that information. And of course, um, WAF or the World Obesity Federation often will um, suggest other resources that may be external to the organization, which is complementary or even may enhance the knowledge that is gleaned within.
0: Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that we do have over 50 modules now on different aspects of obesity management, exactly so we can help to reduce that stigma and improve healthcare practitioners knowledge about obesity. And we will certainly include a link to that implicit bias test in our show notes. So we would encourage all listeners to have a go at doing that test. So we could certainly discuss this for hours. I think this is a really fascinating conversation. I know that our time is almost up. So I suppose I just want to ask you before we wrap up, where can people find out more about the issues we've discussed and about your work more broadly?
1: Absolutely. So there are two key resources that I'm going to leave with the team here, Alexander. One is a lecture that I gave um, here at Radcliffe, Harvard Radcliffe, a few years ago, which really talks about obesity and its complexity. It is one hour and 11 minutes, so a lot of um, time, but I think it will go fast. As you have heard today, I talk fast, I have a lot to say, a lot to get out. But the complexity of obesity is such that you can watch and learn and, and really, I think, enhance your knowledge about how the brain is the major organ that regulates weight, how you know a mom and dad's weight status preconception can influence weight you know, an individual or offspring's weight, et cetera. I mean, so many things to look at. And so I I really think that's a great resource. In addition to that, I have written a book um, called Facing Overweight and Obesity, a complete guide for children and adults that's available on everyone's favorite marketplace, Amazon. I feel like they should give me money for that. Um, but I'm, I'm saying that to be facetious, but it's obviously easily accessible. It's available as a Kindle book. So if you want to watch it, read it on a Kindle, or if you rather have a hard copy and want to turn those pages and smell that new book smell, you can do that also. So um, I feel like it's a pretty comprehensive resource. It's over 350 pages discussing all things about obesity obesity for children and adults, even media and its influence on obesity, for example, which we haven't even gotten into in this lesson. But um, I think those are those are two really great resources that um, I think a lot of people really enjoy. So that's what I would recommend. Fantastic, thank you so much. Oh, and I do want you guys to follow me, if I can't not do this. Um, I am available to be followed on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, at AskDrFatima. So ask, A-S-K, Dr. D-R-F-A-T-I-M-A. And follow me, I'm always putting up some key pearls about obesity, and so you can continue to learn there.
0: Absolutely, so we'll make sure to include links to all of those and to your social handles in the show notes. Well, Dr. Fatima, thank you so much for your time. We know you're an extremely busy person and we really appreciate it. It's been a really fascinating conversation. So thank you so much and hope to speak to you again soon.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here and I'm so excited that those of you that have listened to this have taken the time to listen. I think you're taking your first step on this journey towards helping us really navigate this most prevalent chronic disease. I think we can do it together, but we can definitely not do it alone. So thank you for taking time to listen.
0: Some fascinating insight there and so much to reflect on. And thank you all for listening. I've been Alexander French, and this is the Everybody Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode.